We are seeking in this season to try and understand better than perhaps we may already do what evil is all about, where it comes from, how it works, how we can learn to respond to it in the most creative fashion possible. And in the very first week of our study, we began by going back to the beginning, to the story of Genesis, to look at how evil became unleashed in the world in the first place, how it began to work upon human life. And we saw how evil is this very perverse choice to seek to have life on our terms instead of God's terms, even though it means forsaking the greatest possible kind of glory to make that choice. Last week, we moved on in our conversation to ask the question whether God is to blame for evil, whether he is the one at fault for the kind of suffering and the struggles and all that we associate with that word evil in this life. And I hope we got some helpful handles on that subject. Today, I want to think with you about an even more primary question. Uh, One that is um, really important to answer for ourselves, especially in this modern era. And the question is simply this, does personified evil really exist? (laughs) I mean, is it for real evil? Or is it simply the explanation we give for far more common kinds of phenomenon? Isn't this whole Lucifer or Satan story, some say, just a projection of our worst fears as human beings? Isn't it the equivalent on an adult level of the child's monster on the bed terror? Could that be really what evil is? Or aren't stories about evil spirits and demon possession just a primitive way of describing mental illness or social maladjustment? Uh, Could that be the explanation? Or when people say that that this group or that particular group are are evil, isn't that just the sort of the kind of excessive paranoia or the sort of uh, primitive tribalism that is responsible for a lot of the problems we have in the world today and that should have died with the Salem witch trials? Shouldn't we take with a grain of salt every single story we read in the Bible that describes the action of the devil or of demons. Maybe it's time for 21st century Christians to drop this whole evil talk. What do you think about that? What do you really think about that? One of my very favorite films of the last couple of decades is a movie called The Usual Suspects. I don't know whether you've seen this one, but it describes the story of a an investigation by a certain detective into a spree of absolutely unthinkably horrible crimes that uh, just so devastatingly violent and bloody and wicked that, that the detective is just almost chilled by what he has encountered. And a string of clues increasingly seems to illuminate the outline of a particular figure behind all of this. A wickedly cruel and powerfully genius figure of foreign origin who goes by the name Kaiser Soze. The problem is that the detective's main source of information about this elusive, uh, shadowy figure, this brilliant sociopath, 
His main source of information about him is a half-wit invalid snitch named Verbal, who is played by Kevin Spacey, brilliantly by Kevin Spacey. And the shadowy figure that Verbal describes in his halting, stuttering kind of way seems far too clever, far too powerful, far too dramatic to really be real. And, and the detective is beginning to, you know, really doubt this until Verbal rejoins, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. But eventually disgusted that he has been wasting his time listening to this stupid invalid's crazy stories, the detective sends Verbal on his way only to realize moments too late that all along the simpleton sitting in his office was Kaiser Soze. Now I want you to imagine that you actually are a brilliantly intelligent, insidiously wicked being who has decided that you are going to spoil people's lives. You are going to draw them away from God because you cannot stand the fact that God has the throne. Could you come up with a better first strategy for reducing people's resistance to your influence than to propagate a caricature of yourself that is so melodramatic, red suit, pitchfork, horn, so out there Hollywood wild, that most people, most thinking people, <laughs> write you off and just embrace secular Answers, secular explanations for all of the world's struggles? Or could you devise a better second strategy than to get a whole group of people so obsessed with looking for you, mainly in the lives of other people, that they, they neglect to witness to God's love, they neglect to really take responsibility for their own sins, they neglect to address creatively the hurts of the world. In his brilliant book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis thinks about the subject of evil. He looks at it from evil's perspective. And Lewis writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. By the way, look at our times. Look at how many programs today are obsessively focused on evil. There's a new program called Lucifer now that, that, that creates this romantic devil, this handsome devil, this seductive devil you almost have to come to like or love the 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 so many programs that i could do a long list and you've seen many of them are obsessively interested in the serial killer in the in the in the wicked player in the in the insidious politician how much we are obsessed today with the subject of evil the devils writes lewis themselves are 
equally pleased by both errors, by writing them off or by diving too deeply into fascination with them. They hail a materialist or a, magis- or a magician, a secularist or a fanatic with the same delight. So what do you believe, what do you personally believe about the reality of evil and why do you believe it? Well, I'm convinced that there's no way to read the Bible seriously and hold on to the thought that is embraced in some circles that Satan and evil are not particularly significant parts of this book. I think it's very difficult to, to be a serious reader of the book and, and conclude that this is just one of those antiquated streams that one can excise from the book and do oneself no harm. Genesis practically begins its discussion of human life with this incredibly bold assertion that humanity has been severely impacted from the very start by a malevolent influence. Uh, In some 33 separate instances, in all four Gospels and the book of Acts, we're told explicitly about the actions of a supernatural evil. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says that our most significant struggle in life, in fact, is not with each other. That's probably good. Maybe that's bad news if you're having significant struggles with somebody else. But he underlines for us that that often behind the struggles we're having with with human beings is a much deeper theme, a much more significant kind of struggle going on. Paul says our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness. A similar theme recurs 10 other times in the epistles. And the book of Revelation ends the scriptures, as you know, with the declaration that at the conclusion of history, there will be a final climactic battle between God and Satan, and God ultimately wins. The question that I guess I want to ask you is the same one faced by that detective in the usual suspects, and that is, do you believe this? Can you believe all of this? Well, I will tell you that I I was trained to not believe in these things. I went to Yale. I went to Princeton. There was a a skepticism in those uh, areas. They suggested this was primarily myth, and I was trained not to believe this. I will confess that I personally am a little bit skeptical about a lot of the paranormal uh, activities or phenomenon that make the tabloids in the supermarket. You know, I'm, I don't think any of the political candidates running for president are actually aliens. I don't think they're actually aliens. They may behave in an alien way, but I don't think they're from another planet or the like. But, you know, I find it no harder to believe in, in demons or Satan than I do to believe in God and his angels. I find it no harder to believe that some other race of human beings, or rather a race or class of beings should fall from grace, should turn their back upon their creator, then I find it hard to believe that we did, that I myself rebel 
against God, sometimes with no remorse and only a self-bent conviction. As Oxford professor Austin Ferrer once said, when we speak of evil, we are speaking of the same spirit of perversity that's alive in every one of our sins. The same spirit, perhaps more intensely, with more knowledge even than we have, but is alive in our sin. A spirit that could look the glory and the blessings of God Almighty in the face, could have all of eternity surrounding him, look at it all, and spit in God's face, saying in effect, to heck with you, I'll have it my way. I want it my way. I'll go my way. I'm reminded of a little girl who was berated by her mom for pushing her brother down to the ground and then spitting on him. The devil made you do that, girl, her mama said. And the little girl responded, I'm not so sure, mom. The devil might have made me push him down, but I thought of spitting on him all by myself. (laughs) And I wonder if it doesn't work that way. I, I, I wonder if it isn't conceivable that an external evil and our internal sin, they just intertwine with one another. It's hard to see where one begins and the other uh, uh, leaves off. They just intertwine to produce all kinds of subtle and horrific realities of the kind that are played out on the pages of Scripture and in the daily news of our time. Have you ever thought to yourself as you looked at the events of our time, as you as you heard about the latest crime or, or, or the terror scene, have you ever thought to yourself, you know, there's just no way that bad parenting or improper diet or insufficient socialization or destitute beginnings or poor education or other sociological causes, there's just no way those things explains that. There's something so terrible. There's something so hostile to the spirit of life itself that something beyond must be at work in those circumstances. Have you ever thought that? I know I have. We have now established empirical evidence that there exist bacteria and virus invisible to prior generations which interact with the chemistry of the human body and the human mind with terribly adverse effects. It seems willfully ignorant to dismiss the possibility that there may exist other and even more insidious entities than bacteria and viruses, spiritual parasites in a sense, that we simply do not yet have the instrumentation to validate scientifically, but which are at work. The Enlightenment popularized the notion that the, uh, what the Bible calls demon possession was in fact simply a mental illness. But what if some of what we call mental or emotional or social maladies are in actuality the effect of ill-intentioned spiritual influences from which you and I and all of us, to a greater or lesser extent, suffer? But if that is what is going on, 
Let's assume for a moment that we can take God's word at face value about all this. Let's just assume for a moment that, that evil is real. It's substantive. It's, it's the real thing. The larger question for us becomes, how do we spot it? Um, before we can do battle with it, we have to know it's there. We have to be able to recognize it. Are there signs? What's it out to do, <laughs> for example? What's it really out to do? Well, I want to suggest that in the story we read from Mark chapter 5 today, we get a pretty good picture of what evil is about, how to recognize it, what it wants to do. Uh, and so let's go back to that story and look for just a moment at some of the characteristics of evil that are described in that particular narrative. First of all, we look at this man, this uh, garrison demoniac, as he is known traditionally, and we see a person who is without love. Here is a soul that is cut off from meaningful connection with other people. Uh, he is alone. His family and friends have given up on them, or he has given up on them. And as a result, this man, we're told, lived in the tombs. He lived in death. He lived with death as his companion. He is so alienated from relationships with the living that his only home is a graveyard and his only companions corpses. That is what I mean when I say he is without love. He is cut off that severely from real relationships. Secondly, the man is without peace. He's without peace. The Bible says, and I quote, no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had been often chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke through the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, no boundary, no fetter was enough to keep him from this restless flailing, this violent agitation, this restless wandering. As he goes his way through life, he's without peace. He's without love. Thirdly, he is without joy. He's absolutely without joy. Night and day, the text says, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out in agony. He would cry out. Presumably, this fact was known to others. They had heard his wails of misery in the night and in the long days. He is without joy. Finally, here is a soul without Hope, without hope, having lost the capacity to think clearly or, or to see a different kind of tomorrow, only the darkness is visible now to him. That's all he's able to see. And in a spiral of self-destruction, we're told he, he cuts himself with stones. He, he just mutilates himself with the instruments of life. This is what evil looks like. This is how you recognize it. The Bible does not tell us how these dark shadows completely overtook this particular individual's life, but we can make a guess. I think we can make a guess because we see how evil works in our world and how it tries to infiltrate our lives. The enemy of God likes to gently place the thought in people that they are worthless. They are not worthy of love. And they are 
they are worthless unless they possess that fruit, that forbidden fruit, or they look better, or they work harder. The, the enemy speaks these words in till people live lives that are so frantic and fragmented as they're trying to find acceptance and love that they're alienated from the very relationships that might actually give it to them, that might actually provide them with a true home. Evil whispers into people's souls. It speaks out through all of the amplifying organs of our society that happiness is always around the next corner. It's not here now. It's not as good as it could be. You need to keep going. You need to keep searching till till people are so restless they jump from one job to another, one uh, love to another, one friendship to another, one self-help strategy to another, Vainly searching for what it is they can't name. Mark Twain once famously said, uh, there's something I I long for, I cannot name, but it fairly makes my heart ache. I want it so. And evil loves that ache. Evil hisses that what you've done is unforgivable. Those things you know about, nobody else knows about, or few people know about, they're unforgivable. Evil is constantly trying to tell you that who you are is undesirable, that the loss you have experienced is unredeemable, till more and more people in our world are left crying out in the night or silently through the days. Is it any wonder that evil goes by the name Legion? Legion. Now, that word meant a lot in the first century, maybe more than it does in our time today. If you were living in first century Palestine, if you were one of the people walking in the time of Jesus, that word sent chills down your back. There was not a person in Palestine who was unfamiliar with the Roman legions. A Roman legion was an elite corps of 6,000 soldiers. It was a legion that occupied Israel that kept it ground underfoot, that took advantage of the people whenever it wanted to. The desire of evil is the same in our lives. Its short-term objective is to rob us of the love, peace, joy, and hope that is our inheritance as the children of the king. This is something of the character of God in us. The image of God, love, hope, joy, peace. These are the the marks of the character of God in us. Evil wants that gone. Evil wants to leave us lonely and restless and miserable and despairing. But evil's ultimate aim, its ultimate goal is to destroy humanity altogether. It is to so obliterate the image of God in us, our ability to see the image of God in other people, is to so wreck that that we become like just so many pigs plunging over the edge of the abyss, snarling at and biting each other all the way down to destruction. That is what evil is out for. And he makes progress In certain parts of our society, in certain parts of our world today, this is what is happening. This is what is going on. 
Evil is very real, says the scriptures. And like Kaiser Soze, this adversary is remarkably intelligent and cunning. He is the great deceiver, the Bible says. He is the liar. He is the con artist. He is out to destroy the image of God in us. That's what he wants. To destroy or disfigure at least, dismantle, disable the image of God in us. But there's a final truth that the Bible seeks to impress upon us and which is the good news I want to share with you today. This is the good news that we're meant to carry out into the world. Imagine for a moment the kind of force that could make 6,000 battle-hardened warriors fall to their knees whimpering and begging for mercy. Because that's exactly what happens in this narrative. The legion begs Jesus not to torture them, not to hold them accountable for what they're doing. Imagine the kind of spiritual firepower that could compel, in a matter of seconds, 6,000 of the adversary's soldiers to give up the position they'd spent years consolidating and turn on their heels and flee. This is the good news. This is the reality. And as we're going to explore further next week, evil cannot stand before Christ. The Apostle John puts it this way, and I wish you would memorize this verse if you haven't already. The one who is in you, meaning Christ, is greater than he who is in the world. More and more today, we are living out of a, of a terror that, that, that somehow we are powerless before evil. I say to you again, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, says Jesus. But I, I have come that people might have life and have it to the full life and life abundant. In the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, there hangs a, a particularly famous copper engraving by the renowned German artist Albrecht Dürer. You ever heard that name before? He's the one who did the praying hands. And this is a, a, a magnificent piece of art. I hope you'll go and see it someday if you've not already seen it. It was completed in 1513. That's a photograph of it. And the engraving pictures a gallant armored knight who is riding down this narrow gorge. And on either side of him, there are these threats. There is this goat-headed devil. There is this rotting corpse of death. And the implication of the art is that each of these is seeking to claim him, wants him as their own, but the evil gains no advantage over him. Why? Why is he safe from the evil? Because the eyes of the night are fixed straight ahead. They are locked, as it were, on his destination, on his home, on his father's household, on that eternal kingdom towards which he is marching, on his identity, on his final estate. And though evil is there, the shadows will not have him. They cannot take him. 
Is that true of you? Is that equally true of you? This morning I look out and I see a a group of people who, for all apparent purposes, are like the man at the end of Mark's story, sitting there dressed and in their right minds. Looks that way, at least. But I got to ask you, I got to ask you the question as you prepare to ride out from here. What's your focus? What are you letting your eyes look at? Where are you letting them fall too much into the shadows? What's going on in your mind and your heart and your life because of that? Are your eyes fixed as firmly as they could be on your ultimate destination? Are they fixed fully enough on the face of your father? Are they, are they, are they gazing in the direction of his kingdom towards which you are moving? Or have you been listening to the enemy's propaganda way more than you have been thinking about the things of God? Are you fascinated with what lies out there in those dark shadows? Have you become like one of those people C.S. Lewis was concerned about? Or are you moving just so bleeding fast? Are you encumbered by so many worries and cares and to-dos that you have not noticed that evil has made a very successful assault on your spiritual supply lines? He's cut you off. He's cut you off from God's power to help you so that you're not praying, you're not reading the Bible, you're not investing yourself in the the fellowship of the people of God at anything like the level you need to to be strong in the midst of this battle? Is there some lie? Is there some vice or vanity in your life you've just accepted not realizing it's a beachhead? It's a bridge. He's thrilled he's got that much. He's going to take more in your life. If you don't blow up that bridge... If you don't stop him at that beachhead and push him back. And if any of this seems to ring true for you, then welcome to the human race and to the spiritual battle, to the war that all of us are in against the authorities and the powers of this dark age. Please call in some reinforcements, will you? They're there. Please call in the help that's there. Ask for the help of others with whatever is taunting you. Talk to somebody before you leave the building today and say, I'm struggling with this. Will you pray for me? Uh, Ask for that help. Return your eyes to the king today. I mean, really focus. Reset your gaze and your vision once again. The one who, as that great spiritual knight himself, familiar with all of the battles, St. Paul reminds us, That Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. He has the power. So turn to him who commands the very authority of heaven to help us win territory back and to support others in this battle until Jesus comes again to win the final victory. Let's be joined together in prayer. Lord of power and love, 
You know those places in our lives, the life of our community, the life of our world, where the foreign legion have found a very comfortable billet. You have told us in your word that if we draw near to you, if we challenge evil in your name, it will flee. We do that now, Lord. We do that. We fall on our knees before you. We ask you to cleanse our lives of all of the evil one's influence. We pray that you will strengthen us by your power to fight evil wherever it rears its ugly head in the days to come. Help us to keep our eyes fixed firmly on you and the goal of your kingdom. Make us courageous soldiers of your son, we pray, asking these things in his powerful name. Amen.